find today from the Gospel of Mark is strange miracle opens eyes. We're looking at what may be the strangest miracle in the New Testament. It's where it appears that Jesus needs a do-over. It appears that Jesus' power is not complete. And that Jesus has to go back and complete a miracle that He wasn't able to achieve. It's a very, very strange miracle. It might be one that you've missed. You might have read right past it. So let's go right to it this morning. Mark chapter 8 verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Don't go tell anybody. It's a strange miracle here. You say, what is all this um, spit business about? Well, in ancient times, spit was known to have sort of a healing power. Again, we see the kindness of Jesus to almost symbolically say to this blind man, I- I'm healing you. I'm touching you. And so he takes him aside and he-, he does this miracle. Well, at first the man can see, but not clearly. People are looking like trees. And so Jesus calls for a do-over and he comes back in and he again touches his eyes. And now the guy has 20-20 vision. What a story. Now, why is this story here? I mean, why would you put this weird story about it taking two touches for Jesus to be able to heal this man? I don't know about you, but if I I were writing through and trying to tell great stories about Jesus, and I had a pick of the litter, I might have left this one out. In fact, most of the Gospels do, but Mark doesn't. Why is it here? Number one, first of all, because it's just simply true. And one thing that makes me have great faith in the Bible is that the Bible never tries to skirt the issues. And it puts the stories in there that we might would put in there. And the stories about some of the characters there we might not have put in there. It's true. But most importantly, and here's what I really want you to get this morning. It is timely. This gospel comes as we're studying the the book of Mark. And it's right in the middle of Mark. And there's great significance to this. Understand this. New Testament writers were not nearly as uptight about chronological order as we are. In other words, Mark had the freedom in ancient days to take a story and put it in a place where it might not have been chronologically. To make a point, I think this is one of them. Because in the middle here of Mark, we see the disciples do not see clearly. Jesus has called them dull. Jesus has told them they've got eyes and they're not using them. Jesus has said to them, you still don't understand after I've told you so many times? They're just not getting it. One of the most vivid illustrations was, you know, we saw a few weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000. What an incredible miracle. And yet in the next story, when Jesus calms the sea, he even comments, they still don't understand the feeding of the 5,000. And then a story I've skipped this week, earlier in chapter 8, was the story of the feeding of the 4,000. And you remember that? I mean, again, a big crowds come out. They don't have enough food. 
What did the disciples do? Well, here's what I expect them to do. Go, my goodness, just a few days ago, we fed the 5,000. Our attendance is down today. Should be no problem for Jesus to feed 4,000. Jesus, whip it up again. And they go, where we can get the food, Jesus? We don't see any food around here. I mean, no wonder Jesus says, you guys are dense, you're dull, you're not getting that. And that's why this miracle is put here right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. But specifically, let me tell you what they're really not getting. In Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells these guys that he is going to die on a cross, and they cannot get it. They, They don't understand it. It is so foreign to their picture of the Messiah that intellectually they reject it. And though, the, though Jesus continues to repeat it over and over, they don't understand it. Now, you know, sometimes we're a little tough on these guys. It's like, why don't they get it? Do you ever get frustrated reading the Gospels and, and looking at the disciples? I do. Why can't they get this? But understand this. This idea of a Messiah that will die on a cross is something no one has ever thought of before. And so it's just like information we don't want to comprehend. We don't comprehend it. It's like terrorism. Guys, we had all the data before 9-11 that there were people in the world who wanted to do incredible destruction to us. They'd even done some things. They'd bombed some embassies, my goodness. They'd even at one point bombed the World Trade Center. But despite all the data, it was unfathomable to think that there could be an attack that would bring those towers down and kill 3,000 people in one swoop. We, we, our, even our government could, could not quite get its mind around that despite the fact all the data was there every we all knew something like that could happen but when 9-11 happened we knew it could happen and our eyes were opened and, and, and though we had the data now we really could see that's what's going on with these disciples they got the data but they cannot put it together in fact I was listening to a lecture out of the Pepperdine Bible lectures by, Rand, by Randy Harris And Randy said something that really helped me with this. He said, no one before Jesus had ever put together the Son of Man prophecies in Daniel 7. The term Son of Man was a very messianic term. Talking about the Messiah. Daniel 7. No one before Jesus had ever put the Son of Man prophecies in Daniel 7 together with the suffering servant prophecies of Isaiah 53. In retrospect, we love Isaiah 53. We think it's a complete understanding of the cross and what happened there. Listen, before Jesus, no one had ever put those things together. No one had ever thought the Messiah, the Son of Man, would also be this dude over in Isaiah 53 who was the suffering servant who would die brutal death on a cross. No one had put those things together until Jesus comes. And so maybe we don't need to be so tough on these disciples. Because that was just, it was almost incomprehensible to them. Oh, they knew Daniel chapter 7, and they knew about the Messiah, and they knew he would have power, and Jesus had displayed it. But they assumed the power is going to be used to restore Israel to power and to set up a throne in Jerusalem. That's their assumption. You ever had an assumption that was so big in your mind, you couldn't see past it? 
Maybe it was the way you were brought up in church and it was so drilled into you. And despite the fact the scriptures kept challenging it, maybe someone kept challenging you, you just, just couldn't quite get past it. That's where they were. And that's why this miracle is so important. Because this miracle comes right in the middle of this. Before this miracle, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of understanding. We'll see by the time we close today, after this miracle, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of understanding. This is placed here to say, you know what? Guys, I know you're not getting it. Just like this blind man, for some of you it's going to take a second touch. And so not only is it true, not only is it timely, but let me also say this to us this morning. This miracle is timeless. Because let's be honest while we're down on them. We don't always see so clearly. We need this story. We need it. In fact, let me say this about this story. I believe this is more than a miracle. It is a parable. It's a parable about life. It's a parable about spiritual growth and the way it happens in our life. And it's strategically placed here to say to us, you know, in the middle of your life, sometimes you see things, but they're fuzzy. Sometimes you're starting to get this Jesus thing, but it's not completely clear. You've become a Christian, but you're still struggling. You love God, but the way he's behaving, you don't like. And things are really fuzzy. And you too need a second touch. So this morning, let this strange miracle open your eyes, okay? Let it open my eyes today. Let me give you five lessons I think we should learn from this miracle. Number one, everyone is spiritually blind. Everybody's spiritually blind. If you read the context in verses 1 through 10 of this chapter, the disciples are blind. In chapter, in verses 11 through 21, the Pharisees are blind. Everybody's blind. The insiders and the outsiders. The blue collar and the white collar. The somebodies and the nobodies. The religious and the irreligious. Everybody comes off in the Gospels as blind. Now that's a little bit different than our modern view of people. Our modern view is that basically everybody is good. And if we can just get them in the right position, and the government can provide the right programs, and everybody's on a level playing field, then because everybody innately is good, it's going to work out. And that's sort of the modern American view is that really, you know, I know they did some bad things, but in heart, everybody's good. That's not a biblical view of mankind. Now the ancient view that some of us probably grew up too with is that there are good people and there are bad people. All right? There are people that just are good-hearted and there are people that are are bad-hearted. That's a sense of dualism. Now this view is also very dangerous because it allows you to categorize people. Some of the worst atrocities in history have happened and are happening because we can categorize certain people as being good and certain people as being bad. The Nazis could say the bad people were the Jews. And one of the most intellectual cultures in the history of mankind bought it. And when you decide a whole group of people is bad, you can murder seven million of them. We see it happening in our world today in genocide. Whether it's different brands of Christians doing it to each other, different brands of Muslims doing it to each other, we see it happen because once you can say, this group of people is bad, 
Because, you know, all black people are bad. All white people are bad. All city people are bad. All re- I mean, you, you, you can categorize people and you're in trouble. And so that ancient view of good people and bad people has got us in a lot of trouble. And again, it's not a biblical view. The biblical view is that we're all blind. The biblical view is because of sin in the world and sin in our life and the fall of mankind that the truth is we're all bad. you got to face that. You can't really make progress until you recognize how bad off you are without God. And so the story teaches us, the context teaches us that we're all blind and we all need to be enlightened. Now, number two, and this is probably the most important point today. Spiritual clarity comes in stages. This is what I want you to grab onto. Because we want it to be overnight. We want spiritual growth to be like hitting the lottery. <laughs> you hit the lottery and you're, you're done for life. Well, you know, the truth even about the lottery is you're paid in installments. <laughs> I don't know that from experience, but you're paid in installments. Because in, in spiritual growth that way. Here, here's the problem I think we got. We have bought into, more times than not, the Paul model of spiritual transformation. You know what I'm saying? And we see Paul. Here's this terrible dude killing people. He's blinded on the road to Damascus. He becomes a Christian, and the next day, he's preaching. And we're thinking, that's the way it's supposed to happen. Even though I'm not really sure that's real accurate, Galatians would tell us in chapter 1 that Paul went to Arabia for a certain long period of time where I think God worked on him. But, But again, if you just read the book of Acts, that's what you think. One day he's Saul, the next day he's Paul. One day he's murdering people, the next day he's preaching. And I'm thinking, that's the way my life ought to be. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I think sometimes it does happen, but not many times. Most of us would be much more comfortable, that's why we're drawn to him, is is with the Peter model of change, right? Because Simon Peter changes very, very slowly and in stages. And here's what I think this parable is saying to us today, this miracle, is that most of us grow with second and third and fourth and fifth touches. That it doesn't just happen overnight. See, I I believe there's a lot of us who live with an awful lot of guilt and frustration about our spiritual lives because we don't change quicker. We expected to be Paul and we ended up being Peter putting our foot in our mouth over and over again. And we just don't know what to do about it. And then Satan whispers, well, you know what? If you'd really come to the Lord, you wouldn't be having these problems still. If you really knew Jesus, you'd be changed. If you really, you know, had the road to Damascus experience, my goodness, it'd be one time, it'd be one and done. And it's just not. And and, and I think that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Spiritual transformation, spiritual enlightenment, spiritual clarity comes in stages. Now, this is hard for us. Because we're Americans. And in modern life, we expect things to happen quickly. How frustrated do you get when your cell phone's out of service? I mean, just think, guys, 15 years ago, you know, my goodness, you'd ride across America and you couldn't talk to anybody. 
You know, I mean, to get somebody, you had to stop at a payphone. Remember those? Or you had to get to home and use a landline. And I mean, but we've got where everything is so instantaneous. And so now, if I'm passing through Connecticut County and my cell phone service goes down, I am angry. And I blame Tim Lee. I mean, I am angry. That's just the way it happens, all right? Because for, for us as Americans, we want things instantaneous. <clears throat> We're a microwave culture. But listen to me, guys. You are going to be so frustrated spiritually if you think that's the way spiritual growth happens. Listen, spiritual growth is not microwave. It is crockpot. <laughs> It absolutely is crockpot. It is slow. It is a process. Sometimes it is difficult. And that brings us to number three. Number three is spiritual clarity happens in community. What is the crockpot of change? The crockpot of change is Christian community. Listen to me in this story. This blind man would have never made it to Jesus without some help. Because we need help. That's why with all the atrocities the church has done, all the follies in the church, all the hurt many of us have had in church, it's still the best thing going. It's the biblical thing going. This idea that I want to love Jesus and I don't need church, or even this idea is I can just come to church sort of independently. Oh, I show up. Um, I listen. Buddy, I even take notes. And I go home, and I try to live it out on my own. That's not a biblical idea. The biblical idea is that you were meant to digest this together. When the Bible, New Testament was first written, it was not read individually. It was read in community. It was interpreted in community. And it's in community that we grow. And listen to me, guys. If you want to spiritually be transformed, then you've got to put yourself in a place where it, you're in relationships with people that help you grow. You weren't meant to do this by yourself. I love the group I meet with, a group of men I meet with every week, and we ask each other five questions. How's your relationship with God? How, how's your time with the Lord been? How's your relationship with your family? How are you treating your wife and children? How's your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Who are you really specifically trying to encourage? How's your relationship with lost people? Who are you trying to reach out for Jesus this week about? And number five, how's your relationship with sin? In what way is sin entering your life that you need to confess and we can pray about? I'm telling you, you need to have that kind of community with somebody or some group of people. That's why we're so big about getting people in some kind of small group setting in this church. Why? Because we understand that the crockpot of change is being around a group of people who sometimes see things differently than you do. Sometimes we are all individually blind, and I need someone who's seeing from a different angle to open my eyes up, or someone to hold me accountable. Why? Because too often we can live in denial. We're like the, the, the attic. I mean, what does the addict say when you come up and say, you know, I think you're an alcoholic. What do they can say? First of all, no, I'm not. Like that changes anything. And then they're going to say, I could quit what? Anytime I want to. And they convince themselves of that. Maybe it's about pornography. Maybe it's about drugs. Maybe it's about alcohol. But that's the way an addict speaks. I love what our people who work with addicts say is, 
one thing you can rest assured when an addict opens their mouth, they're lying. <laughs> Why? Because we can learn to live in denial. And God, spiritually, if we're not careful, we can live in denial. Oh, how are you doing, God? I'm fine. Well, how's your walk with the Lord? Great. You got any sin issues in your life? Well, maybe a little bit, but I could quit any time I want to. Because that's why it's so important that we have spiritual clarity and that we find it in community. Because here's what we're going to find out, guys. We need more than just a minor change. We need more than just an adjustment. We need a Savior. And that brings me to the next point. Clarity comes as we embrace the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus. Listen to me, guys. Things get really clear in your life spiritually when you get to know Jesus. And you begin to see his teachings, his claims, and you begin to understand his lifestyle. You see, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. Uh, the book of Hebrews says he's the exact representation of God. It's in the, in the figure and person of Jesus that God, truth, everything comes together. If you're reading your Bible, I would encourage you. First of all, I encourage you to read your Bible. Second, I would encourage you to read in and out of the Gospels. Read an Old Testament story, go back to the Gospels. Go read an epistle, go back to the Gospels. Because it's in the Gospels where things get crystal clear. You really want to know what God's like? Some of these Old Testament stories mess me up. You really want to know what a life of faith looks like? Some of the epistles, mm, I have a hard time putting together. Look at Jesus. He's the perfect picture. And he'll start giving you clarity. Now, as we keep reading this story, we see Jesus claims... And Jesus' claims were radical. Look at verse 27 with me, Mark chapter 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and some others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Do you recognize this? We're in chapter 8, verse 29, and this is the first time that has passed human lips. Oh, the demons have confessed, Jesus has admitted, but this is the first time one of the disciples gets it right and says, let me tell you, this is the first time this really happens. And someone says it. Now, but, but back up just a minute with me. What a claim. This is like going to college. Let's say you go to college, you have the same professor in your major for three years. At the end of those three years, the professor says, here's the deal. Here's the question. Here's whether you pass or fail. What is it, sir? What is it? Who do you think I am? <laughs> You're the professor. That's how bold Jesus was. It all boils down to who do you think I am. And here's the point where they finally get it right. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, now listen, we, we do want to stop at this moment and applaud, don't we? Because Peter gets it right. All right? And this is sort of the pinnacle of the Gospel of Mark. It's all added up to this moment where Peter finally can say, we know who you are. You're more than Moses, more than Elijah, more than the prophets. You are the Messiah. But let's keep reading. All right? 
If Peter's about to get cocky, he's about to be humbled. Let's go to the next verses. Now we talk about the lifestyle of Jesus. Here's the suffering servant part that they couldn't get. He then began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Why? Because they couldn't get it. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you get over that passage? Rebuking Jesus. Try it. Not a good idea. He takes Jesus out to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What's he saying? Peter, you're still looking at this from a human lens. You're still not seeing clearly. You're still seeing me like a tree and not like the Messiah. You don't get it. Let, let me help you get it, Jesus says. Let me help you get it. Watch this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Peter, not only is this what I'm going to do, I'm going to cross. If you're going to follow me, it's what you're going to do. Yes, I am the Messiah, but yes, I am the suffering servant. You need a second touch, Peter, because you still don't get it. And God, so many of us today, we're right there. We need a second touch. And that's okay. That's the way spiritual growth happens. You know, we first become Christians, and it's really about what God can do for me. The most evangelistic person I used to know, he'd take a piece of paper, he'd study the Bible with someone, and he'd list every promise that God had made and everything God, it would be incredible. And then he'd point to the piece of paper, he'd say, do you want that? And who would say, no, peace and joy and love and the Holy Spirit. Do you want that? Oh, yeah, I want it. Well, then, are you ready to be baptized to get it? He was extremely effective. And all of that was true. It wasn't the whole truth. You, you see, when we, we become a Christian, often we've, we've come with that first touch thinking, wow, look what God does for me. And then we get introduced to Christianity and we see it really is not about what I get, it's about what I give. And I need a second touch to understand it's not about me, it's about them. It's about Jesus. Many of us need a second touch to move from legalism to grace. We grew up thinking, you know, it's about me keeping all the rules straight. Some of us even were deceived enough to think we were doing it. And then you finally realize, you know what, I can't do it. If this is the basis of me getting it all right, I'm lost. And you get in the Gospels and you watch Jesus and you watch the way he treats Simon Peter and you begin to get that second touch of grace. Some of us started with the first touch, yeah, we became a Christian because basically I don't want to go to hell. I don't either. That's not a bad motive. I don't want to go to hell. And then maybe we decided, man, I'd also like to go to heaven. And then we decided, I'd also like to be a better person. But we still need another touch. We finally need that touch when we move from fear to reward to my, the truth is, I just love Jesus and I'd do anything for him. You move from fear to love. Many of us need that second touch. Many of us need the touch from going from a simplistic view of faith to a more realistic view of faith. Many of us grew up, I did, thinking, my goodness, I become a Christian, I do the right thing. Everything in my life is always going to go perfect. Everything's going to fall in place. If I get sick, I'll get well. You know, if somebody gets in my way, they'll get out of my way, you know. And then you start looking at life. And there's that man that's writing 
this week who was in that tub in Oklahoma clinging to his wife and children and praying more earnestly than he had ever prayed for God to save them. And he saved and his wife and children perish. And that doesn't fit your original view of Christianity. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. And so you begin, you got to have a second touch. How do I put this together? And you go from a simplistic view of Christianity to a more realistic view of Christianity. That God never promises you he's going to shield you from every bad thing in your life. And everything's going to go well in your life. But he does promise you, I will be with you no matter what happens. That's quite a different view. And some of you are struggling right now. Things are fuzzy in your mind about God because those kind of things have happened in your life and in your family. And it doesn't go with your simplistic view of God and faith. And so we've got to go from confusion to clarity. And here's the good news I want to close on this morning. The final point here, number five, God still gives second chances. Thank goodness for that first touch. Because in that first touch, maybe you were innocent, maybe you didn't understand everything. Certainly you didn't understand everything about the teachings of Jesus, just like these disciples. But the great thing about the first touch is that you tasted it. You tasted and you knew that the Lord was good. And now you've entered this period of fuzziness where things don't look very clearly clear in your life. And the things you thought were so simple and plain aren't quite so simple and plain. And you need a second touch. And that's why this story is here. It's because it's telling you that Jesus is there to give you a second touch. Let me ask you this morning. Do you need a second touch? Now, one time you were so innocent and so excited about Jesus and so on fire for him, but life has thrown you some curveballs and, oh, you're here, but... You're not where you ought to be. Are you like this, man? Well, Lord, I see you, but it's just real fuzzy, man. I like what I heard one preacher say about this. Here's the thing about this story. How about when Jesus asked the guy, do you see clearly if the man had said, oh, yeah, Jesus, it's crystal clear. I see perfectly. You know what would happen? The man would have spent the rest of his life with fuzzy vision. He had spent the rest of his life cutting down people and hugging trees. We <laughs> okay. said, buddy, what is the point of that? The point is, this all starts when you admit you don't see clearly. If the guy had covered up his problem, he would have never seen clearly. He would have gone the rest of his life with fuzzy vision. Guys, here's the good news this morning. It all starts by just admitting. Jesus, I mean, I see you, but I don't see you very clear. I'm understanding life, but it's, it's really pretty fuzzy to me. I mean, I've got some faith, but I'm doubting you right here. You know, I've got a problem, and I've got to stop living in denial. Because I, I, really, I keep telling everybody I could quit anytime I wanted to, and it's really not a problem. But it really is a problem. Guys, here's the good news today. You, you just got to admit it. Jesus is saying, okay, you're seeing clearly? Don't say, oh yeah, Jesus, I don't want to admit anything's wrong with me. It's all crystal clear. 20-20 vision, Jesus. 
They'll be like this man say, Jesus, you've done pretty good here. And I can now see people, but they look like trees. Could you, could you give me a do-over? I'm even the star of this story, of this whole gospel. Peter, who, who probably is the source of Mark. You've been studying First and Second Peter, many of you in Sunday school. You know, I mean, back here, Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand this thing about the suffering servant Messiah. He doesn't understand about Jesus' death. He doesn't understand about the cross. It's completely beyond. But by the time you get to First and Second Peter, he now says, suffering is really a good thing. And when you suffer, you'll probably be more like Jesus than you ever were. He had a second touch. My question this morning is, do you need a second touch? If you do, would you let us pray for you today? The, the, the big point is just getting out of denial. The big point is, even before these people here may have no clue what's going on in your life, of coming to this front row and going, ask God to give me a second touch. And I need, you know, the place where this happens, the crock pot, is community. And I need you guys here in this church to help me get it. Because I don't quite get it yet. If you need that, that's the first step, the most important step. Then Jesus can give you a second touch. Why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?